Now I'm going to put this on the uh, overhead here, and this is a, a basic view or understanding here on the doctrine, what's called the doctrine of the Trinity. And let me get back to where we were. Zoom back. All right. This, okay, I think you can see that now. And this is the definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. If you look at it very closely here, uh, this is also called the, uh, the Trinity Creed. It's also called the Athanasian Creed. It's got uh, various titles to it for different reasons. But it says simply here, there are three separate and distinct persons in the Godhead. This is the doctrine. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. Now, basically, we know what that means. That means that they are equal in power. They are co-equal in the eternal, eternal. That is that they are, uh, they, in fact, the next line sort of spells it out, that they were together all the time and then coexistent. They live together, work together, and so forth. Then it goes on to say in the definition of the Trinity Code here, or the Trinity Creed, as it's also called, Never was there a time that one was before the other, and never shall there be a time that one shall be after the other. There is no place that one is that the other is not. Neither is one greater than the other. Neither is anything known to one that is not also known to the other. The Holy Trinity is equally omnipresent, meaning they are everywhere, uh, omnipotent, all power, and omniscient. And this, is, of course, is what is said about God himself, is that he is everywhere, uh, he is all power, and he is uh, all-knowing, omniscient, and so forth. And they would say they, the Holy Trinity is equally that. And uh, this is a little bit confusing to people who actually analyze what that definition means, and it is even to me, and it would be to many of us. But this is what was adopted uh, by the early church as a whole in 325 A.D. This is like uh, 300 years after Christ. And uh, they began to fall away, and these people in the early church came to the place where that they adopted this. What was happening in the Roman Empire was that the Roman Empire had persecuted the Christians for so long. They had gone through 10 major persecutions over that period of time. And the people had been persecuted so much they began to try to harmonize with the normal citizens so that they would be not be such a standout. And they had leaders who would rise up and say, we will show you a better and a more sophisticated way of doing things and so forth. So finally, whenever Constantine the emperor who came in power in 313 A.D., his mother was a Christian. Constantine had been at a battle, and this is so he says that he, as he went into battle, he saw a cross in the sky, and he went into battle and won, won the, the battle because he said it was like God saying, I'm going to be with you. And from that time on, he became sympathetic with the Christians, never a convert, but always sympathetic and brought Christianity into the mainstream of the Roman Empire. And his effort to do that, this was in 313. In 325, he called for a council. Called the, it was the first ecumenical council. He called all the Christian churches together 
to a place called Nice, and it is just north of what's today Istanbul, Turkey, just north of that, like on the border of Greece and Turkey, right in there. And he called them all together in 325, and he said, I want you to unify the Christian faith so that we all believe the same thing. There's various beliefs here and there and so forth. And so they begin to hammer this thing out. They had three things that they dealt with at the Nicene Council. They had to deal with the subject of what do we do with people who recanted in times of persecution? And they said, well, no, I'm not a Christian, and they lived. And then afterwards, they want to be back in the church. Do we allow them back in the, in the Christian faith or not? And that was one of the questions. The other was, when is Easter? How do we set the date for Easter? And that was another one of their, uh, on the agenda, things that they had to deal with. Uh, these things were handled very easily, very quickly. The, the third thing was the most difficult, and that is uh, the identity of Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus Christ, really? Who was he? And so this was what they worked on for so long, so hard, and they tried to hammer out things, and they came to the place where they could not agree totally on things, and they knew it did not line up with Scripture, and they admitted that it did not line up with Scripture. But in order to bring them all together in unity, they finally agreed on what I'm going to present to you here this morning, which is the, or I should say what I just showed you here, which is called the uh, definition of the Trinity Doctrine. <clears throat> and so they were, they were trying to work all these things out. I'm just trying to give you a picture here of how all of this developed. And once that was established, and I can show you this in literature and books and so forth, once that was established, everybody else was considered a heretic outside the church. They were like, you're not in the church anymore, whatever they believe. And so uh, they adopted this, this concept of the Trinity Doctrine, even though... It does not logically totally make sense, neither does it line up with the Scriptures, which they admit the word Trinity itself is not even found in the Bible. Uh, and uh, they decided to adopt that, that they could all agree on and so forth. And the emperor pushed for that to be solidified and put his weight behind it and so forth, that they may bring forth the unity because he wanted to bring forth the unity of the entire Roman Empire. And this all happened in the, at the Nicene Council in 325 A.D. In three, uh, I think it was 385 or 383, they had a second ecumenical council. And at that council, they passed a law. This was now the Christian organization and so forth. They passed the law that anyone who did not believe in the Trinity would be a heretic, would be banished, and could be put to death because they did not believe in the Trinity. This is how severe they had become with it. So I'm just pointing out to you how that this became a, a thing that uh, was, was actually a bad thing, and out of that developed what we know of today as the Catholic Church. There were two, two parts of the Catholic Church. There was the Roman Catholic Church, as we know today, and then there's the Orthodox Catholic Church, or the Eastern Catholic Church. And, uh, and of course, it is, it is the one that deals with Greece and and Russia, the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, uh, Romanian Orthodox, go on and on, Serbian Orthodox. It's the Eastern Church. Uh, they do not have a pope, but they have 12 apostles, men like work as apostles, who are their leaders and so forth. And uh, their doctrines are very similar to that of the Catholic Church. And so later on, these two factions broke apart and became separate. 
Now, what I want to talk to you here today here is a little bit about this, how this Catholicism came about. Uh, several years ago, I uh, wrote an article, and uh, this is one, this is the first part of it. It has two parts to it, and it's called The Origin of the Trinity Doctrine. In this article here, several pages here, in this article, I, uh, I dealt with the fact that the, uh, that the Trinity Doctrine started with ancient Babylon. This is why the Bible has a lot to say about Babylon. And when you get in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and chapter 18, it talks about Babylon. It talks about Babylon and the, the evil of it and so forth. It's called the harlot church and so forth. It's not just Catholicism that it's talking about, but it is talking about the doctrine of, of polytheism. Polytheism is the belief of the worship of many gods. And that has always been an abomination to God because God did everything. There is one God. I'm going to give you some things in a minute here. But God is God of all. And for us even to begin to shift any of that glory or that praise or that uh, acknowledgement to anything else or anyone else is an abomination to the Lord. That's why... Uh, that's why idolatry was an abomination to the Lord. And he even states it in the Word of God, that that's an abomination to them. And so this was that first article. I won't go into detail on this. This was what was established. This is where all uh, polytheism came from. Babylon's where it started. Went from Babylon into Egypt into Greece and uh, the, uh, to the Philistines. I mean, yeah, the Philistines as well. Uh, Phoenicians, the, the Romans, so forth. Until And they had a multiple line of gods. You know yourself that our planetary system is named after the Roman god system. Jupiter, you know, being the chief god. you got Mars, Venus, you know, and, and our planetary system is named after that even. The Greeks had the same thing, but they had it named differently and so forth. And the so same thing with the Egyptians. And same thing with the, but it goes back to Babylon, ancient Babylon. And, uh, of course, that's all history. And uh, I can give you much information, and, and it's documented, and I've got that in this article. The one that I really want to talk to you, though, about is, uh, is the one here that is the origin of the Trinity Doctrine as it was adopted by the Christian Church in 325 A.D. at the Nicene Council. Because when they started looking for a belief about Jesus and about God, they started looking around to what other beliefs had, what they, what they believed, and so forth. And they adopted that old belief so that it would appeal to the common man. The Romans could identify with it better and easier. And they felt like there was much wisdom in that. And so they began to go that route. And, of course, it brought, sure enough, the Roman Empire altogether. And it watered down Christianity to the place that Christianity was no longer what it had been before. The power of God was lost, you know, the power of the early church. Uh, the truth was lost uh, so that people were bound more to the church than they were to God. Uh, they begin to say, we are the people, not of Christ. We are not the people of the Lord. Or we do not follow the apostles' doctrine. But they said, we are the people of the creed. They called this the creed. And from that on, that time on, they became known as the people of the creed. I have a couple of history books here uh, that is written. One is just simply says uh, the creed. 
this is the book and it's mainly the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, the creed, and it's all about the Trinity, the doctrine. And this is what their whole system is based upon, is what was developed in 325 A.D. at that Nicene Council, and it's called the creed. Creed means belief, and it's just a Greek word, coming from the Greek word credo. Uh, this is another book that simply says the people of the creed, the story behind the early church. It wasn't really the early church as we know it from the Bible. It is the early church starting from 325 A.D., and the people of the creed. And I have much more information. I have history books that, would, that my arm could not touch from one to the other end, you know, just, and I've studied and read them and so forth. Uh, I want to sort of present some of these things to you here, and uh, I want to show you, first of all, how that what the Lord says. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to Isaiah 44. I just want to show you here in the Scriptures what the Bible says. Uh, and uh, about God. I'm going to read, first of all, some from the Old Testament, then some from the New Testament. Because after 70 A.D., the Gentile world did not respect Israel. Israel had been demolished. Uh, the temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 A.D. The Jews had been captured by the Romans, taken and put into slavery, sold on the auction block down in Egypt. And they were scattered throughout the world. And the Lord said that's what would happen because of their sins and transgressions and their rejection of their Messiah, which was Christ. And so when that all happened, the respect for Israel as a nation or as a people diminished. Therefore, their, their Old Testament, their writings of the Old Testament became a subject of no respect. So that the early Christian church, as time went along, and they begin to have their own views and philosophies coming into the picture, they never waited against that Old Testament, what God had to say about himself. And uh, this, was a, uh, this was a tragedy. Look, uh, if you would please with me here, if you look in, uh, I'm reading in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. This is some things that the Lord said. I'm going to read a series of verses here to you. Verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his, that is Israel's Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Notice that. And then in verse 8, For ye uh, fear ye not, and neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from the time, and, from, and, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God beside me. I know not any. Okay? So there's none other beside him. And it goes on to say, I'm reading over here in, in the uh, 44th chapter, in the 24th verse. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. In other words, nobody else is with him. Chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord. And this is all found in just one spot here in, in Isaiah. There's, there's many others. Uh, chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. Notice that. No God beside me. Verse 6. And they may know that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the, of the west, going down to the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Uh, also in that 45th chapter, if you look at verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, 
He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Praise the Lord. Verse 21. Tell ye, this is a 45, chapter 45, verse 21. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. So this God makes himself to be the Savior as well. Jesus Christ, as you know, is our Savior. Is just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And then verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Verse 40, chapter 46, and I'll finish up with this one. Verse 9, remember the former things, this 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Praise the Lord. I just read a, just a section of scriptures here where the Lord states emphatically, there's only me, there's nobody else, there's nobody else around and so forth. And yet the Trinity Doctrine came along and said, oh, yes, there are three. And uh, it, was, came, it came about. I'm going to read some of this out of uh, part two. Now, this is the second part of the article I just showed you was the origin of the Trinity Doctrine back in ancient Babylon. This is where it was adopted. This is the article uh, where it was adopted by the Nicene Council here. And this is the part of it, and I'm going to read some of this to you so you get an idea here. What, and just hang in here with me because I've got some other things to give you. How, so you get an idea here of how this early church adopted things because men who began to have influence among the, that early church were people who had gone, to Greek, gone through Greek philosophy. They had studied it, and they tried to adopt some of that Greek philosophy into Christianity. Folks, you can bring nothing more to the truth. The truth is pure. The truth is pure. And we can add nothing to it. Praise the Lord. Everything we need to live for God and serve the Lord, we can find it in this book here. We can find it in the book. You don't have to go outside of the writings of the Lord. And the book here was written by prophets of old in the Old Testament, and they were written by the apostles in the New Testament. Praise the Lord. The Bible says we shall believe on Him, Jesus, through through the apostles. Now, let me read this article here to you real quickly here. We shall now see how this Trinity concept of God, referring to this first article here about how the Trinity was developed in the beginning. And then it says here, we shall see, now see how this Trinity concept of God eventually seen, seeped into the New Testament church and is now handed down to us in the form of the Holy Trinity. Uh, in the early church, there were warnings. We talked about that. Warnings of apostasy uh, that would come by Christ, by Paul, by Peter, by John, by Jude. They all warned us that would be a falling away. Now, part B here. After the uh, decease of the apostles, there were various church leaders who began to rise up and to lead the church in a direction contrary to the apostles' doctrine, as is mentioned in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Early Christians' view of Christ. Now, I'm quoting here from... A History of the Christian Church, Volume 1. It says this, The early Christians, including those who had been the most intimate companions, came to cherish very exalted views of Christ. They regarded him as Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. They called him Kairos, uh, which meant Lord, indeed. 
the only creedal affirmation which seems to have been asked of the first converts was subscribed in the declaration, Jesus is Lord. That's it. He's Lord. And when they said Jesus is Lord, and here's what it says below that, while to those reared in Greek or non-Jewish or oriental backgrounds, this term would bring to mind the many lords of the mystery religions. To those with a Jewish heritage, the word kairos was the Greek term employed for the Hebrew Adonai, which meant God himself. So when the Jews would say to Jesus, thou art Lord, they were saying you are the Messiah, and to say he's the Messiah would say he is God himself, because the Bible says his name should be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, you know, and so forth. And so the name, all kind of scriptures, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of those things that they knew was there so that the Messiah was indeed God himself among men. Those want to say these first Christian century Christians did not attempt to answer all the questions which Christians would invariably rise as they struggled with the problems presented by this unique and charismatic person whom they had come to know. In other words, it's saying simply here, and this is taken from the scriptures here, that they had not dealt, did not deal with things that would eventually arise. Can I just say this? The way we deal with things that arise and so forth against Christ and against truth is say we stay with the truth. I uh, was in a bank one time years ago, and a woman said, you want to see a, you want to see a counterfeit $20 bill? Excuse me. <coughs> One of the women that worked in the bank. I said, yes. And so she showed it to me, and I said, you know, if I were to have this bill, I said, I'd just figure it was a regular $20 bill. And she says, I know, but she said, this actually is a counterfeit. I said, how do you know it's a counterfeit? And she said, the way we know, and she was the one in that bank who always determined whether a bill was counterfeit or true. Anything that was in question, it was brought to her. She says, the way you know a counterfeit is to study the real. You study the real, and you know the real with all backwards and forwards. And then you can spot a counterfeit. You don't study the counterfeit. You study the real. Everybody still with me? You study the real thing. If you study the real word, and you study the truth, and you know the word, and you get it in your heart, folks, it will counteract any counterfeit that comes your way. You'll say, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. No, 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 that's against Scripture. You see what I'm saying? So you study the real thing. Let me read on here. Church leaders influenced by Greek philosophy. In the second, third centuries, why did divergent views of the relation of Jesus to God were put forward? There were ideas. Some, including the convert Justin, Justin was probably the beginning of it, whose spiritual pilgrimage had led him through Greek philosophy to Christ, who had become acquainted with views of the Logos, which were akin to those taught by Philo. Philo was a, was a Jewish philosopher who lived in Egypt, well-educated, and had a lot of influence upon the Jews that were still in Egypt at this time. I have his book, the book that he wrote and so forth. I have the book on Philo, who held, the, who held that the Logos to be the second God. So he sort of believed in there was two gods. Uh, Tertullian, this was another one of those church leaders who eventually came around, believed in the monarchia, a solo government of God. As to the Malarchians, so to him, God is one. 
In other words, this is how Hebrew, in connection with God, Tertullian employed the Latin word substantia. In other words, whenever he was, he was a Roman, so he used Latin language, and he was a lawyer, and he pulled out some fancy words that were among the, the uh, Latins that were not among the Greeks and some of the others. And so, consequently, he used the word substantia. And substantia, uh, we know from which the word substance comes from, is also the word that he began to use, taken from Roman legal terminology uh, and meaning a man's status in a community. He declared that in his substantia, that is God's substantia, or substance, God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that they are all part of the same substance. You know, So Tertullian said there are three personae or parties that have their place in the economy or the administration activity of God. They are seen in the government through which monarchy of the rule of one God operates. Here is a unity of substantia, but a unity distributed to a trinity, a unity of substance, but a trinity in form and in aspect. There, there as in his use of substantia and persona, Tertullian uh, uh, contributed to later creeds through which the Catholic Church would express their faith in this creed. And so it goes on to say, it talks about one named Clement, and uh, said he had been a native to Athens. It seems certain that he was born a pagan and that he was reared in the atmosphere of Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic is, Jew, is Greek culture. And, uh, and thought, process of an eager and inquiring mind, Clement appears to have conformed gladly to the electric temper of the Grecian-Roman world of his day. He dipped into the various philosophical schools with which he came into contact and read extensively in some of them, notably in Platoism. Plato was one of the philosophers of Greece and goes on to say, talk about these. Origin was another one. Origen was born in Christian Paris, probably not from the, in the year of 185. He was introduced by his father in the scriptures to Greek learning after his father's death. Origen continued his study of Greek literature and in part earned his living by teaching it. He lived with extreme asceticism, curtailing his hours of sleep, giving himself exclusive to the uh, catechismal school and to the continued study of the scriptures of Greek philosophy, including neo uh, Platoism. A, a superb teacher, he had a profound influence upon the students from them and through the writings of it. And it goes on to talk about this. I'm not going to read everything here. But it goes on to talk about how that he began to influence them and they came up with a different, a little bit different form. So they had different forms about how that God was connected. I mean, Jesus was connected with God, but he was not altogether just the only God. And finally, it goes on, and I say here, in general, this was the beginning of the falling away period mentioned by Paul that was to come. And then I talk about the Nicene Council here. And I'm not going to read all this to you. But it was, uh, he called it together. The purpose of the, con the, of, the, of the council, I've already explained to you and talked to you about it. And it goes on to say here the different things that were done. And I'm quoting here from different books and articles and things that are not articles, but books of history books that I've read and everything. And when they finally got down to the end of it and everybody was squabbling, everybody was saying, this is what I believe, this is what I believe, this is what I believe. They were trying to come together in some kind of form of a unity because they believed some of them in Trinity in different ways, a triune God system in certain ways. 
And the triune God thing, folks, goes back into ancient times and is found in every religion in the world. It, you can find it, and, I, and that's in that first article that I showed you here. But it's found there. It's, it's, in, uh, it's in Zoroastrianism. It's in Shintoism. It's in Buddhism. You know, all of those old religions in the in the far in the Far East, there there's a trinity or triune God system. They have names for them and so forth, and they're all there. But I'm trying to say that it was nothing new under the sun. So when they came to the place of the Nicene Council, they started trying to draw some kind of belief that they could all come together. And they finally came to the agreement that what they were going to agree on was not scriptural, was not scriptural, but it brought unity to the group. And that's what they finally, and when the, and when, when the emperor saw that, the emperor said, then let's go that way. Let's go for it. Because I, I want this to be a, a unified thing. He was more interested in unity than he was in truth. And so in the midst of all that, it was lost. That was one of the beliefs. Let me just throw this out for what it's worth. One of the beliefs that they really contend with was a belief called Arianism. A fellow by the name of Arius believed this. And he believed there was two. He believed there was God. And then God had created a second God that was you know, that was not co-eternal with him. And he had created him. That was Jesus Christ. And so he said that he created a second God, and the second God was the first one, and then with that God he created all things and so forth, trying to tie it in with some other scriptures and so forth. This is why in the Trinity doctrine they say co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. There was our time that one was before the other. That was refuting Arianism. And they actually, uh, it was a doctrine that sort of fell by the wayside. They condemned it and so forth. The Jehovah Witnesses picked up that doctrine. That's what they believe. If there's anybody here that has been, or you, you are even today, forgive me if I refer to them because I don't usually speak about different religions, denominations in the pulpit. You know that. But uh, Jehovah Witness adopted that. So they believe in one God. They do not believe in the Trinity. They believe in one God, and they believe that Jesus Christ was a little God, or he was a brother to Michael the Archangel, or some of them believe he was Michael the Archangel. I think it was. They believe he's Michael the Archangel, and that Satan was like a brother, and then Satan was, you know, cast out, and so forth. Weird stuff, but nevertheless, they believe that Jesus, that's why they say we're not Jesus' witnesses, we are Jehovah's witnesses. I was up in Washington, D.C. there here a few years ago and uh, standing out. And it was at Christmas time and hardly nobody was around and just a few people out. And a guy was out in front of the, you know, the White House with the, the fence and all. And he was passing out tracks. And it was a Joe Witness guy. And so he, I said, he said, uh, hey, how are you doing? I said, and I started talking to him. He said, I'm Joe Witness. I said, yeah, I, I picked up on that. I said, I'm a Jesus Witness. I'm a Jesus witness. You're Jehovah's witness. I'm a Jesus witness. Jesus said, go ye all the world and preach the gospel, you know. We are witness. You shall be witnesses of me in Judea, Samaria, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the world. That's what we are. We are Jesus' witnesses. We're witnesses of Jesus Christ. They say we're not witnesses of Jesus Christ. We're witnesses of somebody greater than Jesus Christ. There is nobody greater than Jesus Christ because God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Praise the Lord. And anyhow, I just want to throw that out. That was Arianism. And as a whole, they rejected that doctrine. But the Jehovah Witness, as a religion, did finally eventually pick up on it, and they use it themselves. And that's what they believe, if you ever wonder about it. 
If you ever say, oh, we don't believe in the Trinity, that Jehovah's Witnesses say, yeah, we don't believe in the Trinity either. But they do believe in, in two gods, one's greater, one's inferior, one's less, and so forth. And uh, I won't go any further than that. Let me, uh, let me just take a moment here. I'm trying not to bore you to death here. But let me take a moment here and talk to you about some scriptures where Jesus stated himself to be the mighty God. Or it lets us know that he was that one God that Isaiah talked about. Isaiah, you know, Isaiah recorded where God said, I alone, there's none beside me. I know not any, you know. And all you got to do is just say, put a ring around it. It's in the word. I believe it. And that settles it. Praise God. And we can have all the discussion and we can have all the, the arguments and we can have all the debates and you can go on and on and on and on and on on about it. But the word says God is one. Praise God. And uh, let me show you here some scriptures here that I'm going to leave with you here. If you go to 1 Timothy 3.16, some of these, some of you, many of you know them very well. But uh, let me just refer to them again here. This is 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writing. And he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. And that was, so if God is one God, then that one God was manifest in flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. Praise the Lord. And another scripture that I'll read to you is one found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Think about it. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And it was just this very simple verse. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And he was, Jesus Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Reconciling is bringing them back into his favor and bringing them back into his fold and so forth. And, he, and, and then he goes on to say that we have been committed the word of reconciliation. Folks, the words that we have and the message we have to the world is that that will bring them back in favor with God and get them ready for heaven. Praise the Lord. We have the greatest job on the face of the earth. The church does. Amen. Love it with all your heart. All you folks that have, uh, you have jobs in the church and you work and you have different ministries that you do. God bless you for that. And uh, God will honor you for that because you're helping other people to be reconciled to, to Christ. And to be reconciled to Christ is to have all those sins washed away is to have their lives back on course with God. And one day we'll hear the trumpet sound and we'll rise to meet him in the air. Praise the Lord. Everybody say praise the Lord. Praise Let me move on here very quickly here. Uh, this is John uh, 14. St. John 14. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, I am the, way the truth, and the life. And... Uh, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he's been talking about the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. 
and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him, seen him, the Father. Now, Jesus talked about the Father. Somebody said Jesus talked about the Father because the Father was a different person. No, he talked about the Son, the Son of Man, in the third person. That didn't mean he was another person. You know, third person meaning in, in the sense that he talked about it as them and not by, about himself. You don't want to say what first person, second person, third person. English, you know. Uh, so Jesus would talk about God in the third person, the Father in the third person. But he talked about the Son in the third person. He said, the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. The Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. Foxes have hells, birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. He talked about himself as the, as the man Christ Jesus. That's why often he would talk about the Son of Man as the flesh. The Son of God, praise the Lord, was God in the flesh, praise the Lord, and was begotten of God because God overshadowed Mary. Mary conceived of the Holy Ghost, which is God. That's the Spirit of God. God is a spirit. Oh, God overshadowed Mary. She conceived of the Holy Ghost. And Jesus came forth. And when Jesus came forth, he was the Son of Man because he was the Son of Mary. He was also the Son of God in that he was conceived of the Holy Ghost or conceived of God. He was also God because God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. God could not die on Calvary. But the the price of forgiveness of sins was that of the shedding of blood. So he said to David, a body thou hast prepared for me, that would come forth from Mary. And so when Mary then gave forth a body, and God inhabited the body of Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ was both God and man. As man, he suffered. As man, he hungered. As man, he thirsted. Uh, you know, as man, uh, he was tempted in all manner like as we, yet without sin. But as God Almighty, he healed the sick. He opened the blinded eyes. He did the work that he did. Praise the Lord. So you're not talking about uh, one, one God that has three different heads or three different people or persona or three different individuals involved in it. You have Jesus Christ who, ha- who is it all. Praise the Lord. All in Christ. So I'm just reading this verse of Scripture here to you. Look at this sixth verse again. Jesus said unto them, this is John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Can I just say one thing? It's not Mohammedism. It's not Buddhism. It's no other way, folks, only through Jesus Christ. You've got your Bible. Put a line under that. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You've got to come by the way of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. In verse 7, if you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And Philip, verse 8, saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth or satisfies us. And look what Jesus said in verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Look at that. No, but because this is all that you'll ever see of the Father. God is the Spirit. Okay, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And how sayest thou, then show us the Father? Then he goes on to say in verse 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Praise the Lord. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. And while we're talking about it, what does it mean the Father's in me? Okay, God, the Spirit is in Christ. The fullness of Godhead, Godhead dwelt bodily in Christ, the Bible says. And so, if that's the case, then how is it that, that, uh, that Jesus is in God? Well, let's take, suppose we had one light in this building, one bulb up here, and it was dark. We put that, turned that one light on, that one bulb, and that light from that bulb filled this whole place, all for we could see. It was light in here. All right? The light's in the bulb, but also because the room is full of light, the bulb is in the light. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus said, I'm in the Spirit, the Spirit is in me. Because just as the Spirit is in him, so also was the Spirit everywhere. It went out from him. Do we grasp that? Do we understand that? You know, understanding that Jesus Christ was God Almighty is a very important thing. This is what uh, Jesus said to, uh, and I think it was Peter who responded to it, Matthew chapter 16, Whom do men say that I am? Then he said, Whom do ye say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was saying, You are God Almighty manifest in flesh. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now I, I tell you that because I want you to, to know that it also comes in many times, and I, I know some of our people even believe this is the only way it comes by revelation, that God has to show you that all of God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That scripture in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. We're talking about the, the, the son, the born, and the, the child is born, the, the son given. His name should be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. It's all right there in Isaiah 9, 6. Well, did Isaiah make a mistake? Did he mess up there? I mean, did somebody misinterpret that? What happened? Yeah, it's all right. And he also says his name should be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This was all, praise the Lord, that one God in Christ, not a triune God system that would make heathens say, oh, we can identify with that because we believe in Jupiter, we believe in Zeus, we believe in you know, Pluto, we believe on and on and on, all these different gods out here. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ was the mighty God, and in him is everything, praise God. And Jesus went on here to say that if you've got the Father, you've got it all, praise the Lord. Uh, I'm going to read these other two verses very quickly here. If I were to turn back in John uh, to chapter 12 and verse 45, it says, Jesus said here, And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. Jesus saith that. If I back up to the 10th chapter uh, of that same spot, uh, that same book, I mean, John chapter 10 and verse 37, 38. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, verse 38, but if I do the works of his Father, he says, through though ye believe me not, believe the works that ye may know that, that and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Praise the Lord. And, we could, and there are other verses of Scripture that lets us know that the Lord, praise the Lord, is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Folks, isn't truth a wonderful thing? Praise the Lord. And when you know it, and when God has given that understanding to you, it's not that we are arrogant, high-minded, and said, oh, we know more than those 
people back then and so forth. It's just that Greek philosophies that they encountered and studies of Plato and all of that stuff blinded them. It blinded them to the simple truth. The Bible talks about the simplicity of the gospel. Praise the Lord. It's so simple. And God will let us know what is true if we love him and we want to walk with him and serve him. Praise God. Let's stand together. Let's worship God and let's just thank him here today for his love, his goodness, and his mercy to us all. Would you raise your hand and worship God? Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. Bless this audience this morning. Bless our morning service. Bless the word of God to our hearts and lives. God, we ask you to touch it with a touch from heaven. We praise you and magnify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.